The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. So what is it that's, I don't know, nagging at you? Those little things that kind of get under your skin, that kind of nip at your heel, and they leave you feeling frustrated, annoyed, like your life doesn't matter, like you feel small, you feel ordinary, you feel maybe like your life is an accident and there's all these little annoying things that frustrate you and nip at you and eat at you that remind you and maybe my life doesn't matter, maybe I am insignificant and small and ordinary. Several years ago, when I was working my way through college, I had the privilege of getting hired doing landscaping at a particular home, this wealthy family, and they, they, they hired me to landscape their kind of their front courtyard area that was in significant disrepair. Over many, many years, uh, this place hadn't been cared for, and so a lot of dirt and debris, leaves and stuff, just kind of piled up, B- brush grew up uh, in the courtyard, and so I just went in there and started ripping stuff out out, uh, kind of hacking out the weeds and, and the, the underbrush and kind of cleaning out a lot of the leaves and trying to just clean it up and make it look nice. And I, I had kind of this nightmare moment like any landscaper has when you're hitting with your shovel trying to dig up the ground and you hit rock and you're like, oh no, this is going to make for a, a really long job. And not just any rock. I mean, this thing was huge buried, but a massive rock, right, where I would be planting flowers or new shrubs or something like that, and so I'm digging, and and I mean, it's weird because as I'm digging, this thing has got shape to it, and so I'm digging around, and I'm like, wait, this is no rock, this is concrete, what is it doing here, and so I'm digging, and what what I uncover is this massive basin of a fountain that had been buried and covered up by brush, you know, dirt, leaves, and then brush grew over it. And so what I did was I uncovered the whole thing, I cleaned it out, sealed it, got a fresh, got a new fountain that I put in there, put a little waterfall in there, and it became kind of the centerpiece of the courtyard and the re-landscaped front of the house. And here is this family who had gone from having this really ugly, messy thing uh, to a really beautiful, courtyard uh, with this beautiful fountain with a, with a little waterfall. And, and honestly, it was all there all along. I feel like it's such a picture of most of our lives. Follow me. It might be inadequate, but maybe you feel a lot like that buried fountain. Life happens. Little nagging, annoying problems nip at you and leave you kind of running on your heels, running away from rather than running toward a life of meaning and significance. But as, and as you go through life, hurts pile up. Pain piles up. Frustration. The words that other people have spoken to you negatively. The, the names you've been called. The the failures of your life begin to pile up like dirt and debris that begins to cover over your life. And at some point in the journey, you kind of look around at your life feeling frustrated and insignificant and ordinary. And you have this moment when you go, I was made for more. This can't be all my life was meant for. 
Deep inside of me, there is some cry. There's something stirring inside of me that says I was made for more than this. I don't know where it's at. I don't know how to get to it. And all this frustration and pain and hurt and regret and shame are piled on top, but buried somewhere deep inside of me, there is significance and meaning. You were made for more. In fact, let me, let me bring you to the opening story found in the Bible, the story of creation, the story of mankind. And as we understand it, as we read this Bible, which is not so much one book as much as a compilation of 66 different books that give us an account over a span of 1,500 years, written by over 40 different authors, all these different eyewitness accounts, all these different unique perspectives telling one story of how God interacts with man. And when you go to the very opening chapters of the story, you discover that God created man. And here it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it reads this way. Then God said, let us make man. And, and so right off the bat, you get this little picture of let us, that God is not just one, he, he is one God, but he exists as a triune being. He exists as three persons in one. I, I know it's a little complicated. In fact, even the Bible refers to it as a little bit of a mystery of how God could be one God that exists in three persons, meaning there's a sense of community in this Godhead, the term that refers to this trinity or this triune being of God. And right off the bat, he said, let us meaning he's cooperating with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, saying, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all of the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so right off the bat, here is God as a triune being in perfect relationship and community. He says, let us make man. And right off the bat, we discover that the human beings, mankind, is made with significance, is made uh, special, is made unique. It's kind of like man is the pinnacle of all of God's creation. He sets man apart in a way that he doesn't set anything else he created apart. In essence, when God creates, he spoke everything else into existence. He said, let there be light. Let there be stars and moon and, and planets. Let there be life in the sea and life in the sky. And, and he said, let there be dry ground. And then he filled the dry ground with animals and creatures and all kinds of living things. But when he comes to mankind, it says that he formed man from the dust of the ground. I mean, he took the elements of earth and put it together using his own hands and he fashioned and formed mankind. Actually, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says he formed man. And then in Genesis 2, 22, it says that he built woman. And uh, he, he it, you know, kind of the picture here is that he takes a portion of Adam this rib, and then, he, and then he takes other material and he builds the woman. And so women, you can kind of use it as bragging rights because uh, God uses a different term altogether for he, he formed man, but he built or he put together woman in a very unique and powerful way. And, and so here, here's the idea, right? That God doesn't just speak man into existence. He forms and builds mankind and then he breathes his life into mankind. He makes them in the image, in his image. He puts a 
mark on mankind that is altogether different. He puts a spiritual element into mankind, meaning he puts a living spirit in him. He puts something eternal in mankind that sets apart human beings from all other creation. And then he gives mankind a responsibility. So he he gives them this responsibility. He says, you're going to rule over all of the fish of the sea, of the birds of the air. So he not only creates him unique, puts his image on them, puts his life into them, puts his spirit into them. But then he says, now I've given you the responsibility to rule over all of the rest of creation. Even though you are the most significant, you have a responsibility to care over all of the lesser things. You can't abuse the earth. You don't take advantage of the creatures on earth. You have to rule over them with compassion and kindness and great responsibility. And then let's continue to read. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, a whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. So here's what God does. God looks at mankind and he says, they're very good. He, he, he sees mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. And then he gives them responsibility to rule over the earth. And after he gives them responsibility, he says, now, I want you to rule with care and compassion. He says, it, but it's yours. The whole world is, is your possession to be responsible for it and to be good stewards of it. What's interesting is God not only creates mankind with significance and with meaning, but with purpose and dignity. But the story, unfortunately, doesn't stop there. I mean, how amazing would it be if that's kind of the end of the Bible? Man lives in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, ruling over the world forever. We're, we, we get perfect relationship with God. We get to enjoy the paradise of God on earth. But you and I know that that's not the way this whole thing works. In fact, it's kind of an impossible dream to find this fountain of youth where we live forever in perfect paradise. We don't have to work. The food just kind of grows and we just take care of it. Yay, wouldn't that be awesome? But it's an impossible dream. Why? Because the plot thickens from this point. God had put in the center of the garden a a tree, one tree called the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. But as you can imagine, They did exactly that. They go and they take a piece of fruit from the tree and they eat from the very tree, the one tree that God said, don't eat from. He said, you can eat from every tree in the garden, just don't eat from that one. And they go and they eat from that tree. And as a result, suffering and sin enters the world. Let let me just kind of read to you uh, for a moment, a little bit about what that moment sounded like. God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. He, as he comes to them, he calls out to them, but they're hiding from God. He says, why are you hiding? Because we know that we're naked. Why do you, how do you know that you're naked? You must have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they go on, they put blame. You know, Eve says, well, it was the serpent's fault. He tricked me into eating the tree. And Adam says it was Eve's fault. She told me to eat it. And so God begins to divvy out consequences, just like you would if you were a parent. All right, you go to your room. You, this is your responsibility. This is what's gonna happen to you. And so God starts divvying out responsibility. When he gets to Adam, He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, 
Dust you are, and to dust you will return. There's something, there's several significant parts to when God says, here is the punishment for your, your wrongdoing. He says, first, the whole world will suffer because of your choice. The world itself is in pain, is suffering. The, the earth won't respond the way it would respond. So God created the whole world good, but because of this one moment, sin breaks out, and now storms conduct themselves in a way that is destructive. The earth responds with thorns and thistles. There are, there are natural disasters that wreak havoc on the earth because the whole world and the whole universe is now suffering the consequence of one moment where Adam and Eve turned their back on God, rejected God's way, and chose their own way. They disobeyed God and obeyed their own desires. This is called sin, and sin doesn't just hurt you and I, it hurts the whole world. It's at work destroying the world we live in. It's corrupting the world. And then he continues and he said, as a result, not only will the world suffer, but you will suffer in futility. You'll work hard and you'll get nowhere. You'll spend your life with all these little things nagging at you, annoying you, leaving you frustrated and in futility. But that's not even the worst part. He says, I took the stuff of earth to make you and you're going to die. And you're going to go back to being the very thing I made you from. You came from the dust, and to dust you'll return. And what, what enters into the world is not just futility, but finality, that your life will come to an end. And so death enters the world through this moment of sin brought on by Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. So here, God creates the first, ad, first man and the first woman. And interestingly, if you, if you do any research and reading, anthropologists and geneticists agree with this do some scientific study and you'll discover that nearly all of them, uh, even uh, evolutionary biologists would suggest that all of us came from a first man and woman. They call it the lucky pair. They would say that they have very similar but different DNA as if one was taken from the other but not quite. And, and so from an evolutionary standpoint, then you would have to believe that in the billions of years, through all of this evolutionary process, there was suddenly, with no other prompting, a, a man came into existence. And then at the exact same time in all of these billions of years, in the same region of the world, a woman came into existence. And then they, from them, these first man and woman Every single person comes into existence. That, that would be the evolutionary biologist standpoint. Interestingly, the science does in no way contradict the story of creation of Adam and Eve. In fact, it reinforces it over and over and over again that they were similar but had their own unique DNA and that from the first Adam and Eve, all mankind comes into existence. And so we could simply say, yeah, the Genesis account is accurate and consistent. And yes, really, I believe this. I also recognize and believe that while evolution would suggest that we're on a, we're on a positive journey toward, toward improvement, that mutations are making us better, that doesn't seem consistent with the world we observe. The science we observe and the world we look at suggests that things are breaking down, that new diseases are forming, that things are going more wrong than right. And, and what it, we discover is that it seems more consistent with a Genesis account that the 
that people are breaking down, the world is breaking down, that things are corrupted and broken. Things are not getting better and improving, they're getting worse and breaking down. Well, that would be consistent with more of a picture of what the, what the Genesis account suggests, that the world around us is cursed and suffering as a consequence of sin. Mankind is suffering as a consequence of sin. And so we're facing futility and frustration. And so here is the final statement. If we jump ahead, there was a letter written by this guy, Paul, who's writing a letter to the church in Rome. He hopes to visit them, and he wants to set that church up as his headquarters. And so he writes them a letter kind of outlining the, the doctrine of the Christian church. And in there, he explains, he makes this point, and, and we call it Romans. It's a letter to the church in Rome, chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, Sin entered the world through one man. And death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. So he says it's not just that Adam and Eve sinned. It's that because of them, we all came into existence with this nature to sin. And we willingly sin. We willingly follow an instinct to disregard God and do what we want. As a result, our life becomes buried and we live our lives with these nagging little things, leaving us always frustrated, discouraged, struggling with futility and finality. But God, God was unwilling to leave mankind in this state of utter brokenness, of facing a life of frustration, futility, and finality. And so God intervened in the story of mankind. And actually from this moment, so as you read the Bible, let me, let me give you a little idea of what you're reading. When you read up to Genesis chapter uh, 3, this is, so I read to you the part about God saying, because you disregarded me, here are the consequences. Up to that point, you have a story of creation and perfection. Man is in perfect relationship with God. Man enjoys a perfect relationship with his spouse. That's awesome. Man enjoys the world he lives in. Man doesn't abuse the world he lives in. Man is in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with the world. Right? That, that's the part that we go, wow, wouldn't that be cool? But that feels impossible. No matter how much money you spend, no matter how hard you work, it just never seems like we can reclaim that. But the reality is that God intervened in this messy story. Because from that point on, what begins is what we would call redemptive history. From the moment man messed it up, God began a new story of rescuing man and rescuing the entire world from the consequence of this thing called sin. And he began to write a story. If Adam and Eve had not made the sinful decision they had, the, this entire Bible would not exist as it's written today. It would just be the first three chapters. Man would live in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with the world. But man chose to disregard God. Sin enters the world through sin, death, futility, and eternal judgment because mankind is separated from God and on their way toward eternal ruin because God put his spirit into us. So because we have an eternal spirit, we live forever. But when we're separated from God, we live forever in judgment. God, unwilling to leave us and the world, Suffering the forever consequence of sin intervened in our story so that now you and I, when we read the beginning story, we can discover this principle. And I want to challenge you, if you could write this down, if you're online with us, you can write that down. If you're watching uh, this, this message on video, would you take a moment, get out a pen or your smartphone and write this down. Live on purpose. Now, I challenged you. 
When we started, I said, we live ordinary. We live feeling insecure and broken, buried by hurt and pain. But I'm challenging you that you can live on purpose. Your life can have significance. How? How can you rediscover significance? How can you rediscover meaning in a world corrupted by this thing called sin? Well, let me jump back to the story of Genesis, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. So this is what... So God is, I read you the part where God is speaking to Adam and Eve and he says to Adam, the world is cursed. You're going to work hard. You're not going to get anywhere futility and you're going to experience finality through death. When he was speaking to the serpent, this evil Satan, this is what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. The offspring of woman will crush the head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. Okay, what's going on in this story? Let me just kind of give you a little picture. God is, God is speaking about the rest of history. Here's what's gonna happen. Someday, far down the road, from the offspring of woman is gonna come a man who is gonna crush the head of the serpent, the serpent that came to Eve and seduced her and tempted her into sin. And that man is going to come and fully destroy the work of this Satan serpent. He said, but the serpent's going to strike the heel first. So now let's jump ahead to the story in the life of Jesus. Jesus who comes to earth. God, I talked about, he said, let us make man in our image. So God the Father sends God the Son. Jesus comes to earth for the express purpose of picking a fight with this serpent from the garden. This eternal being that is the intelligent evil at work sabotaging our lives, sabotaging the world we live in, luring us into a lifestyle of sin that leads to ruin, constantly nipping at our ankles. See, our problem is not just those little things that nag us, those little things that annoy us. We have a much greater corruption, this thing called sin that is at work devastating and destroying and terrorizing us. But Jesus came to earth for the purpose of picking a fight with sin, with death, and with eternal judgment by taking on the fight with Satan himself as revealed in this early story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So Jesus comes to earth and the serpent strikes his heel and he dies on a cross. He dies on the cross for the express purpose of taking the consequence of our eternal death sentence. So he dies once for all. The serpent strikes the heel of Jesus and he takes on that full blow. He takes the full bite of sin on himself so that when he dies, he absorbs the, the poison, the venom of sin, of death, of eternal judgment. And when he dies, he dies once for all so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sin, given new life, meaning you have victory over death and given given the pardon for eternity so that you no longer go into eternal judgment, but now you're promised eternal paradise. But Jesus didn't die. He didn't just die. He then supernaturally and miraculously rose from the dead, and in his resurrection, he conquers the power of sin. He conquers the power of death. He conquers the power of eternal judgment so that when we believe in Jesus, the same life that brought Jesus back to life now lives in us, and we are given that same victory. 
When you have the victory of God alive in you because you believe in Jesus by faith, he has forgiven you of your sins, given you new life. How? Because when you believe in him, God's spirit that was removed from Adam and Eve in the garden, God had to withdraw. You sinned, you rejected me. And now God was at work throughout the rest of history, working to rescue mankind. And the climax of his rescue is through Jesus, fulfilling the promise that he gave at the very beginning that Jesus would crush the head of this serpent. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered, he crushed the work of sin, the work of Satan, the work of evil, the work of eternal judgment. So when you believe in him, what was lost in the garden, we are now reunited with perfect relationship with God through faith in Jesus. God's spirit entering into our spirit. No, we don't get to go back to the garden. No, the world is still suffering. No, the world is at work, but the rest of the story is that God is at work still preparing to redeem the entire world. That's kind of what the whole book of Revelation is about, that God is going to bring about a great redemption where he is going to redeem the entire world, the entire universe. Everything is going to be made right. In the meantime, while you're waiting for that perfect rightness to come, you and I live in a broken world with broken bodies, experiencing the pain of futility, frustration, and finality. But when God's spirit is reunited with our spirit, his eternal life lives in us. So now we're changed. So even though the world is broken, even though many of our relationships can be broken, even though we still think in a little bit of a broken way, when God's spirit is alive in our spirit, then, check this out, here's what begins to happen. We rediscover purpose. We go back and we regain what was lost in the garden where God said, let us make man in our image. And he put his likeness into them. He put, his, he put the eternal spirit into them. We regain that. And in that moment, what was, remember, because of sin, what was lost was a sense of purpose. And from that point on, man just goes through life in futility, frustration, facing finality. But when we believe in Jesus by faith, what we gain is we can overcome that futility and rediscover purpose. Then we begin to live, rather than in frustration, we begin to live a life of meaning and significance, knowing that our life doesn't end, meaning it's not, it doesn't conclude in the finality of death. No, our death ends in new life. Now you live and face life totally different. Don't miss this. Okay. If God did not make man, and everything is a cosmic accident, and at somewhere along the course of evolutionary history, all those billions of years that they suggest, somewhere along the line, they're just sprung into existence, a first man and a first woman, and they had babies, and then everything else goes from there. Let's not get into too much detail. Uh, I'll leave that for you parents. Um, then this, then your life is a cosmic accident. Life has no meaning. Life has no significance. Life has no greater purpose. Life, there is no sanctity or value to, the, to relationships. There is no great harmony. Life is a mistake. Human life is no different than a mosquito or a squirrel. And, and so you're, to suggest that your life has meaning and purpose is a meaningless statement. You, you follow me so far? But I am suggesting, so, People live exactly as we would believe they would live, according to Genesis chapter 3. Living a life of futility, facing finality. 
But when you believe in Jesus by faith, you rediscover purpose, significance, and meaning. Okay. It is illogical to believe that if God designed you and put and put in your you came from the desire of God and he designed you that you can then choose your own purpose and significance. Do you see that? It would be illogical if you are designed and made by God, then how is it that you and I get to choose to do what we want when we want to? No, it would be far more logical to suggest that if God, the creator, fashioned and formed us, then he gets to decide the meaning, the value, the purpose of our life. And so we rediscover purpose when we come into right relationship with Jesus. We first discover that our life has purpose. You were put here, not by accident, but by design and by the desire of God. And he crafted into your very DNA the gifts, the abilities, the extraordinary way that you function and act, your unique personality, your unique education, your unique life moments, all scripted and written by God for the purpose of him fulfilling his desires, him fulfilling his plan through our lives. Then we discover that we are not here on earth for what we want, meaning if life is a mistake, then I can do whatever I want because none of it matters. I can pursue my own happiness, but if I am here by the design of God, then I must pursue the purposes of God for my life. And if I am pursuing the purposes of God, the goal of life is not my happiness, but to fulfill the desire of God, meaning to make God happy, to say, God, whatever you want, you crafted me, I will obey you. Now, we have no purpose outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we saw, Jesus, the one whose heel was nipped by the serpent, but who crushed the head of the serpent through his death and his resurrection, through faith in Jesus, we, are, we, we regain or we rediscover our purpose. But when we rediscover our purpose, then you have to take that next step, which is this. Discover God's destiny for your unique life. Don't you settle for the sin desires that give you a life that is less than the best that God has for you. Too many of us, we allow sin to drive us toward desires that are not what God had in store for our life. As a result, pain and hurt, frustration, Things that people said, regrets, shame, failure, all of that stuff piles up and it buries the purposes of God. But God, through faith in Jesus, begins to uncover, begins to read, he begins to uh, scoop out the soil and rake away the leaves and pull away the shrubs of pain and hurt to rediscover the purpose that he put into our lives so that you and I can can discover God's destiny for our life that is unique. You were made one of a kind. The story that we see of the way God interacts with man is that he takes ordinary people people. He puts his extraordinary spirit into them. He puts extraordinary abilities, gifts. He puts his love into them so that he can reveal himself through us. All right, here's the deal. What that means is that you are a one of a kind. There's no one who can be you. There's no one that was designed and created by God the way you are. Just like God formed man, Adam in the garden, just like God built woman in the garden, 
You could say that in a similar way, God set all of the laws of nature and biology in motion so that you would be here at this exact moment. He designed you, he crafted you, and he has put destiny into your DNA. You matter, you have significance, your life has meaning, and your responsibility is to live a life where you are discovering the destiny of God. The destiny of God, then, is not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what you desire. It's about living for the desires of God. Let me read you this passage written by, a, written by the psalmist. Psalm 139, by David, where he writes this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The world exists exactly as we would imagine it to be if the account of Genesis is true. Man lives in futility and frustration facing finality. Man lives without purpose, feels that their life is meaningless and empty. But God from that very moment, was at work throughout all of history to rescue us. And when we respond, we, re we discover God's destiny for our life. What that means is God has put a promise in you, and his promise is your potential. Your potential is not limited by your past. Your potential is not limited by your failures, by your past frustrations, by your shortcomings, by your lack of anything. Your potential is directly related, directly connected to the promises of God. When God makes a promise, that equals your potential. Now, as a result, do not limit your life by your own, by your own mistakes, by your own past. You say, my life potential is based on the promises of God. Therefore, I must pursue the promises of God, which are the purposes of God for my life. Which means, if the dreams that you have for your life don't scare you, they're probably not God's size. If the purposes of God for your life, if when you think about what you should be doing, if you think about where your life is going, if it doesn't demand God to show up, then you are not living a God-sized dream. You are living a man-sized dream, which is not why you are here. The dreams of God for your life, the purposes of God should terrify you should leave you feeling a little overwhelmed because it requires faith to trust God to fulfill his promises, which are your potential. And your responsibility is really just to respond by saying, okay, God, you do whatever you want with my life. I'll respond to you. I'll obey you. I will say, yes, God. And that's actually exactly where I want to challenge you to be right now. For a moment, would you just, would you just pause right now? I have prayed for this moment. I have been praying for you. I've been praying for you, those of you that are present, that are watching this on video, that are watching this online. And I am praying that you would respond by simply saying, yes, God. I will say yes to your destiny. I will say yes to your purpose. I will not live my life the way I want to live it. I will not pursue my own happiness. I will pursue pleasing God, and I will pursue the purposes of God for my life. You take a moment right now, and you quiet your spirit. But as you're quieting your spirit, there are those of you that you need to say yes to Jesus. You need to say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you by faith. I am asking your spirit to enter my spirit. Forgive me of sin and give me new life.
that eternal life. Others of you, you, you believe in Jesus, but you're not living like it. You're a Christian atheist. You, you think Jesus is just a, a little lucky charm or a little card that you get that promises you access to heaven, but your whole life was meant, you were made for more. Your whole life is a story of how you can proclaim the love of God through pursuing God's purposes. So I want to invite you to respond right now. And I'm going to pray over you. And as I'm praying over you, here's what I'd like you to simply do. Simply say, yes, God. Yes, God. Here, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you came to earth to die on a cross and then rose again to give us victory over the power of sin, the power of death, the power of eternal judgment. We believe in you, and by faith we say, yes, God. Would you just say that right now? Say, yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, Yes, I obey. It's a dangerous prayer, but you just say, yes, God. Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to invite you to respond. Would you stand with me? If you said yes to Jesus, I want you to let somebody know. You're you're regaining purpose. And you're going to let somebody know. In your program, there's a place where there's an envelope that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus. There's a Raise the Life banner on your way out. If you're online with us, you let one of our leaders know online. And we want to walk you through the process as you make that decision, saying yes to God. But for every one of us, how remarkable would it be if we, if we took this moment and said, from the rest of my life, I'm just going to live my life saying yes, God. It's an incredibly dangerous moment because now it's up to God. It's not up to me. I don't get to write my story. He already wrote it. All I get to do is say, yes, God. Would you begin to say that right now? Just continue to say, God, I I come to you with an open heart. I come to you obediently. In fact, that's what we're going to sing. Jesus, I come to you. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I I give you all that I have. And so would you join us? We're just going to begin to sing this out. We're going to begin to declare this right now. This is an opportunity for you just to make it this song your prayer. Make this song your declaration. Would you join us as we sing? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.